listeners, and welcome back to the Religious Studies Project. It is Monday morning, which means that we have a brand new episode for you today. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me today is... Theo Wildcraft. Hey, Theo. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. It's nice to be... It's always nice to be back with the Religious Studies Project. Yes. And we love having you on because you have given us a lot of great episodes, and you have another one today... I do. You are actually chairing a roundtable on spiritual abuse. Can you tell us a little bit about this episode? Yeah, it came out of a couple of things that were happening last summer and last September, which is some really important seminars being held by Inform around conversations of spiritual abuse and a really important conference being held at Chester based to a great extent on the work of Lisa Oakley, but also involving people like Wendy Dossett and Dawn Llewellyn and other people. And I was involved in a number of those conversations. And I really wanted to get a kind of whole group together to talk about how we as academics can hold space for conversations between academics, practitioners, pastoral workers, um, you know, all these different communities, what the risks are, what the rewards are, you know, is it possible to actually create change? And finally, I think really importantly for religious studies in particular, what it means to take ethical stances um, as a religious studies uh, scholar and researcher. So it was really my pleasure to kind of host that conversation today. And I hope it's of use to people. Excellent. This sounds absolutely fabulous. And I can't wait to hear it. But before I hand it over to you, I want to go ahead and provide a content warning disclaimer to our listeners, because I know that you do talk about a few sensitive topics throughout the episode. So do factor that in before you listen to this episode, which is excellent. So take it away, Theo. Welcome to this very special roundtable on spiritual abuse for uh, the Religious Studies Project. My name is Theo Wildcroft and I'm hosting today. I'm, my own specialism and research interest is around cultures of community and communities of contemporary yoga. Um, but I'm aware of and involved in a lot of fantastic conversations with colleagues uh, who are working uh, much more deeply in this area. And I wanted to bring a few of them together um, to talk about uh, really what it's like to hold space for these kinds of conversations um, with uh, communities of practitioners and researchers and scholars um, kind of all together really. Um, and it's my joy, uh, first of all, to introduce Suzanne Newcomb. Suzanne. So thank you very much for inviting me. My name is Suzanne Newcomb and I'm a senior lecturer in religious studies at the Open University, but I'm here today as honorary director of INFORM, which was an organization set up by Professor Eileen Barker in 1988 at the London School of Economics. And she set this up in the middle of the kind of cult panic. There was kind of a moral panic around cults at that time. And she was really concerned about how much harm was being caused by misinformation, both um, at times exaggerating harms caused or, or attributing the wrong harms to the wrong group, and other times um, uh, minimizing harms in other groups and, and kind of not being aware of what was actually going on. And so um, I set up Inform as a kind of public engagement bridge between academics who might have real um, 
empirical evidence based on their own research. She was a sociologist, so a lot of this was sociological evidence, but also it's a network of academics, so historians and other subject experts were always really an important part of the network, as well as at different times, um, psychologists. So the point was to, to basically get um, accurate information that was up to date and help spread this to whoever was asking for free um, and as well as the media. It was started by a, a grant from the UK Home Office originally and it's primarily relied on academic charity funders and different grants from different parts of the UK's central government in the last 30 years. So... Um, I took over as director with Eileen's retirement about two years ago. And over the years, it's one, one of the main things it's done is pioneered ways of getting people to talk about controversial subjects in a way that brings people together who wouldn't ordinarily sit in the same room and provides different perspectives on the same phenomena. So we'd have themed seminars, usually on slightly more academic topics, so say... Um, uh, technology or gender and focusing on new and minority religions and get some speakers from movements themselves, some former members, some um, experts, say, in law or psychology um, or all sorts of different areas and try to get all these, these people to talk about shared problems. And quite often these also touched on areas of much more um, emotional controversy like abuse, sexual abuse, um, and all sorts of all sorts of things. Mm. Um, so that's I, I've worked with Inform for about t over 20 years now. And um, it's changed a lot in the time that I've been there and the kind of questions people are asking. But I think one of the most important changes is that there's, although we've seen this resurgence in cultic language, there's not the sharp divide between cults and established religions that there was perceived to be in the 80s. And our talking about harm and the structures which cause harm is starting to become more nuanced and incorporating the... Um, the, the really serious safeguarding issues that are found in established churches that were in the 1980s assumed to be safe. And that's where uh, Lisa's work really comes in. Thank you. And that, that allows me to pass on. We'll, we'll come back to you to talk about specific events. I know Inform has been running recently, but yes, that's a, a, a great moment to move over to Lisa Oakley from Chester to tell us about how Chester became involved in these conversations around spiritual abuse and indeed um, the definition of spiritual abuse. Okay, well, thanks so much for having me. I'm also delighted to be here. I'm an associate professor in the School of Psychology at the University of Chester. Um, my journey in this began about 20 years ago as a PhD student exploring spiritual abuse, which nobody was really talking about here at that point in time. So spiritual abuse is a, is a form of psychological and emotional abuse characterized by a highly coercive, a systematic pattern of highly coercive controlling behavior in a religious context. And so over the last 20 years, I've been involved in um, researching this area and um, predominantly within the Christian faith context. And what has become obvious over the last few years really is that this is, needs to be a much broader conversation. And so it needed to be a conversation across um, other religions and related contexts. But importantly, we needed to bring together people who have different voices um, so that we can really explore this issue, understand it and 
And my driver behind it is so that we can move towards effective response and effective um, prevention. And so that that's really where um, the conversation started. I moved to the University of Chester nearly four years ago now. Um, and one of, one of my reasons for moving there um, was because of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies and the opportunities to expand some of the work that I was doing, but also to, to be able to draw upon the expertise of colleagues in that department and mm -hmm. to bring different lenses to this. I think one thing I would say is, so, so out of that came the conference, which I'm sure Dawn and Wendy will also speak to, but one of my drivers as well is just... Um, being able, when we talk about bringing different voices to the table, often there is a privilege about whose voice is listened to more. And so when we set up the conference on spiritual abuse that we ran in September, it was a driver for me that there was an equality, and, and I understand that's complex, um, but that we tried to create a situation in which uh, survivors' voices were heard and privileged um, in the same way that other voices were heard. And so that was really important in terms of really understanding this. And I think it's perhaps a different approach than is often taken in these areas. Yeah, and that that's yeah, and that's the really I think what's uh, the the events that have been happening at Informa that we'll come back to. And this conference on spiritual abuse that took place September 2021, we should probably clear be clear for the archives, um, was the really significant I think um, point of you know like you say a lot of work's been happening for a long time, but that conference really was was in many ways has been something new as have the events that inform in just that way for bringing communities together in a different way I think. Um, so let's come to your colleagues and let's start with Wendy Dossett. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm uh, Wendy Dossett, Associate Professor of, of Religious Studies at the University of Chester. And along with um, Dawn, uh, we, joined, we joined together with Lisa to, to host this conference in, in September. And I'd never personally been involved in a conference like it, to be honest, in terms of the um, bringing survivors voices directly into conversation with with academics and practitioners um, we'd seen it modeled in in inform so it's it wasn't entirely new but it was my first experience of of kind of being involved in in that kind of conversation um, and it, it it felt risky it felt um dangerous in 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 lots of ways um because we're talking um about people who you know potentially are traumatized um but we're also talking about um really important academic questions about religions and um kind of well-being traditions as well so mm. so that you know that the, there's we want to problematize the term religion or the term faith um in relation to this but um we're talking about these traditions as as vectors really of um of the potential for spiritual abuse in terms of their of their structures, but also thinking about them in terms of uh, how we use the structures that are there within traditions to reorganise and redevelop to make sure that, that that people can participate in in safe ways. Yes, yeah, definitely. And I, I know um, when you talk about well-being traditions, I know a lot of your work is around kind of, you know, Buddhism and that, that it's right on, on that edge. A different part of the issue is different 
parts of these communities being involved in these traditions in some ways for different reasons and and, and to different extents and getting different things out of it um, in different ways as well. Um, And and we're talking about very often quite diffuse organisations. So Mm. it's one thing to to talk about safeguarding in a a highly organised setting, Mm. but it's, it's very different when you're talking about, you know, local meditation groups that that don't have um, the structures or, or the language to, to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, okay, so let's come to Dawn Llewellyn then, because um, I know you are an integral part of putting the conference together as well. Thanks, Theo. Thanks, everyone. Uh, my name's Dawn Llewellyn. I'm also based uh, in the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of Chester, where I'm an associate professor in religion and gender. So I think with my sort of research background, I've always been interested in power structures and how they relate intersectionally uh, and how marginalised groups within religions um, are excluded by those religious structures. I mean, I remember sort of reading as an undergraduate feminist theologians who were identifying uh, the ways in which the symbols and the metaphors and the language um, that are so central to Christianity, which is the, uh, and, and to some contemporary spirituality, um, which is what I work in, but particularly around Christianity, it, it inscribes power, inscribes violence, uh, in, in, inscribes coercion and control. So um, when Lisa joined uh the university and then when she said um, I think over coffee Lisa right as often these sort of fantastic collaborations start happening um, it's often fortuitous rather than planned Um, but uh, she you know Lisa said we knew about Lisa's work we'd asked her to come and talk in the department and we uh, and obviously her speciality is within Christian context. And when Lisa said, "You know what? I'm I'm thinking about how, I'm thinking about Christianity, but what el- what else goes on? What other what other structures in other traditions and other mm-hmm. expressions of spirituality and belief and practice and identity uh, are, are, is this phenomenon happening?" And and she's absolutely right. If if we want to try and understand something in the round in, in 360 in order for prevention, intervention, uh, for uh, improvement in practice. You have to start by listening to the experiences of those uh, of those at the heart of the phenomenon and the problem and the issue to be, to be tackled. So it was a bit of a no-brainer when she said, let's do a conference. <laughs> I think Wendy and I were, were, were straight in with a, with a yes. Wendy and I both have problems with saying yes, but this was a, this was definitely a, not, not a problem <laughs> about saying yes. The, <laughs> When we were thinking about the conference, um, mindful of the ways in which, yes, people who've experienced trauma and abuse and coercion and control would have a space, yes, to the way in which uh, people who are in positions of power, not just around safeguarding, but the potential Mm. for people uh, in positions of power to be there who might have implicitly or explicitly been part of those religious structures that they deemed to buy those victims, whatever language they prefer, um, uh, might be disclosing was something we were really mindful of. And we're also really Mm. mindful of the way in which academic conventions really play into the very forms of hierarchy control that actually this conference was Mm. trying to dismantle and challenge. So we did some very simple things, actually. Uh, We got rid of academic titles. We weren't bothered about who you were. We just all used titles when we introduced ourselves, but we, we just sort of disbanded them for the conference. We also didn't make a massive deal about institutional um, affiliation. affiliation. 
because we wanted we wanted this to be a public event and accessible and once those sort of affiliations start being used that can be marginalizing and exclusionary for, for some for some groups so there are class mm essentially class issues around that uh, and other uh, issues of exclusion. Um, we are also conscious about the disciplinary boundaries. So mm. we have insiders belonging to religious traditions uh, alongside academics uh, who, who don't have a particular affiliation and and then maybe survivors who's, who've left religious traditions. So to mm. what extent might there be apologetics going on and how might we manage that sensitively? Um, mm. And we did, we wanted it to be accessible, but because we weren't sure how the conference was going to play out online, we made the quite difficult decision not to record it. And that was sort of really counter, wasn't it, to a lot of practice that's been happening recently where everything's been recorded because everything's more online. So while we were mindful mm. of COVID situations, um, which is the main reason for going online, we made the difficult decision not to record it. And I think that might be something we change if we do, um, if we do the event again. Um, we, we might think about how we could record things sensibly and sensitively. I mean, I think it was risky. It was risky, but it was also, we were also aware. I think one of the things that when we come to talk about these these whole areas is that we we can assume identities. So we assume that somebody sitting in, in giving a presentation is an academic, but they might also be holding the role of survivor. Um, yeah, and that, that was certainly yeah. true for myself, you know, and it was something that I talked through with Dawn and Wendy. Do I even say this, that I've had this experience because, well, it, you know, straight away, I've been told before it will discount, you know, the research that mm. I've done. I think, that, and to me, that was part of also challenging some of the power and privilege and the structures that um, that we that, that are in place that actually you, you can be a jolly good academic and also have have experienced abuse and harm and a whole range of other things. But mm. but it was risky and, and you're never sure what identities people are wearing, what identities people have in the audience. Um, and so so you know there, there were there was potential. We did a lot of work about trying to create a safe space and that's something that we got quite a lot of feedback on that we were very clear about being respectful respectful conversations and uh, we, we had some ground rules that really uh, seemed to work quite well throughout the conference but I think as, as Dawn said we probably learned some stuff as well maybe about asking people some people were really happy to have their sessions recorded and others weren't and perhaps that's something about you know giving people ownership and autonomy as well. And there's also, I mean, there can be kind of criminal questions, of course, as well. I mean, there are people who may wish their their testimonies to be recorded, but then it becomes it becomes difficult if these, you know, if these cases haven't been prosecuted and and so on. And I, I know that you know, informed that's um, often been an area that you've kind of worked within is 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 things that maybe haven't um, that are might be even within public attention, but haven't been kind of criminal cases as such you know these kind of different levels of harm and, and testimonies of harm um and that thing about moving online i think as well has been a big thing for inform recently with with uh with bringing communities together i think it feels like the conversations have changed um as you've done that i don't know if you'd agree with that suzanne yeah i would agree with it and, and we're still kind of feeling our way in this new digital way of doing things because we used to have Chatham House rules and no, no recording, but having online has brought in this huge global audience. And I think that the team from Chester was really brave in having a really 
big conference with lots of people they didn't know. Um, and something they've not mentioned yet that I thought was a really fascinating idea was because it was online, they had a kind of breakout room where they had a safe space mm. with people who could listen to people. And I think that was a, maybe the organizers can talk about that a bit more because that was really innovative to me. And I thought that was a really great idea. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's talk about this. Yeah, maybe I can frame that a little bit by we maybe we could move to talk about the different intentionalities for being in this space, because we've talked about the different positions of different people in that space, whether it's survivors, um, people who may be more kind of insiders to traditions, theologians, you know, um, pastoral workers and so on and academics and the different needs of people in that space. Um, so, yeah, Wendy, maybe you could talk to that. Yeah, I guess um, I'd I'd go back to your your point about legality and and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. um, when we were interacting with with people who'd offered us um, abstracts, we were um, we we kind of had significant conversations with people who were speaking about cases, actual cases, um, and and we asked people to only. Uh, talk about specific cases if they were already in the public domain. Um, and, and the idea behind that really was um, this is not a conversation about specific cases. This is a conversation about the wider question of spiritual abuse, the, the structures, um, mm. and so on. So, you know, we didn't want the conference to kind of become you know, an opportunity for, um, you know, people to make unsubstantiated claims or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. we did want it to be um, a space where people could speak to their own experience and and for that to stand um, in its own right. So, there were there were sessions where it was very clear that that was what was going on, and um, you know, kind of reflecting on some of my my other research, I do I do research on Alcoholics Anonymous, um, mm. and and those sessions felt to me, I chaired a few of them, they they felt to me very much like Alcoholics Anonymous meetings where people share and there's no criticism or crosstalk, but that a space is held. Um, for for somebody to get that experience out. Um, It did raise questions for me, I think, in terms of what do we then um, do with with that? So um, that's a, a, you know, a kind of profound question, I think, for academics in religious studies, um, which tends to take a very descriptive, hands-off approach, or at least the tradition that Mm. I've been I've been kind of formed in um, and whether it's actually possible to um, just hear that um, and and um, kind of that that not to feed into um, a reforming conversation um, in terms of, of religious traditions. Um, but yeah, so I think there's there's what we did was was provide that space. We also had, um, as as has been mentioned, um, support from 
professional counsellors, um, an organisation called Replenished Life that were mm. um, Lisa's contacts who um, were there the whole time um, and and people were able to go to the, to the breakout room and, and to, to have, you know, um, confidential support from, um, from them. Um, but, you know, there was also within the conference a great deal of... Um, yeah, a kind of fierce academic debate about whether the the concept of spiritual abuse is is a is a valid and legitimate com, um, concept. So, mm. um, you know, there there was there was a lot going on, but we tried to make it clear what was going on when, um, in order to create that 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 sense of safe place, really. It was really unusual that for an interdisciplinary conference across so many different sectors with different people representing Mm. um, different interested parties that um, that that, that lots of people did come without knowing lots of people. Um, And so it, it, it was important that those that I'd hate the word network, but it was it was a, a network in terms of finding other people having similar conversations, but in contexts far far removed. And um, I, I think that was what a genuine sort of joy of the conference for me actually was 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 that. I think you're definitely right, and and certainly I'm. I, I mean, I know for for our panel on spiritual abuse in yoga, for example, there were people attending that who had, you know, as as is often the case, had no idea that yoga had an issue with with spiritual abuse of, of any kind, and it was a, ooh, <laughs> you know, sit down. There's a lot going on, but yes, that although it's not always necessarily a pleasant thing, there's solidarity in finding similar experiences. Um, and there's also a lot of learning to be had if, if it's po- when it's possible to sit with people who come from different perspectives. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm just aware that for many survivors, the aim is not reform. It's the aim is to, you know, as a, a friend of mine once said, burn the house down. You know, you, you want to be you want to end <laughs> the entire institution. You're not looking to reform the institution. And I was really struck at how respectful those conversations were between people who were trying to say, well, how do we reform? these organizations in order to make them safer and other people saying we don't we don't want to make these safer we want you know we, draw, we want you all in jail basically um, mm-hmm. i was surprised at how positive those conversations were considering um, we, yeah. we also sort of borrowed from other academic groups and organizations that have are being much more explicit about expectations around conferences and um being a safe space. So yeah. we, we made clear that conference organisers were there as allies if anybody had experienced any negative experiences of being at the conference. But that's becoming an increasing practice in academia. The you know, BSA, uh, BASR have adopted that. Um, Socral mm-hmm. have adopted those sorts of um, declarations about uh, conferences being safe spaces free from har- harassment. I think that's an important mm-hmm. practice. Yeah, yeah, we had a, a formal written code of conduct, didn't we? That that everybody had to yeah. had to sign up to. So let's let's go let's go to something that's kind of come up in passing already, and about 
about the possibility of making reform, the possibility of making, should we say, institutional change, wider change. And actually, I'm going to pull, ask if Suzanne can speak to this first, because I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but I get the impression that as because of the length of time Inform has been doing that, Inform has been involved in a lot of conversations with government in different ways. And I'm kind of, what is it like <laughs> being in the position of trying to create change um, within non-academic institutions, shall we say? Um, it's, it's a fascinating place to be and you have to have a lot of support and stamina. Um, I think that it's just a lot harder to change anything than anyone would like, um, be that in, in government or in a religious organisation. And... Um, something that was alluded to by the different perspectives and, and Wendy's, I think, really important comments about safer spaces, they're never completely safe, is, is that there's often very, um, very much competing needs. And so if you're going to be an academic and trying to hold some kind of, trying to help hold this some kind of safer space, you're going to be pissing people off. And we're going to piss people off on both sides. So kind of a, a motto for Infor has been like, if we're, if we're pissing people off on both sides evenly we're probably in the right place but of course this is a very difficult and stressful kind of tightrope to walk because you you want to listen to both sides you want to kind of you know there's a better way forward um, and you want to be part of moving things towards that um, more kind and understanding future where people are less harmed in all sorts of ways but it's it's not easy <laughs> at all no no. I think I would resonate with the it's not easy. I think also if you're a member of a, so for, 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 for me, I was a member of mm. the a Christian faith community that I'm talking about these things happening in. And sure. I think that is a really challenging uh, place to be. I think also that we were aware at the conference and, and also the uh, the work that I know informed you that um, we want to hear people's stories. So it was important to have survivors there, but we didn't we, we were aware, aware that people might come thinking things could change quickly. Mm. And that's a real balance to be got about that the truth is that it doesn't change quickly. And so there's something, you know, there's, there's a kind of sense of responsibility you hold when you hold any of these kinds mm. of events that we're asking people to come. We know that's costly. It's hugely emotionally and personally costly. Mm. What is going to be the outcome of that? And I think that's something that 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 we we probably need to talk more about because it because it is one of those things that you think, well, we created this space so people could tell their stories, and then what comes what comes next? Yeah, it's avoiding over promising change, isn't it? Um, but like you say, something that's quite costly. Um, and 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 is there an extent to which it's also about protecting yourself, particularly in the kind of the, the long haul of this stuff of working uh, in these spaces with these conversations? Um, I'm always really struck by the work that Lisa does and how that exposes her public in, in lots of public domains with lots mm. of organisations and uh, and anybody doing this work um, probably goes has similar similar challenges. It, it's just that I hear about <laughs> we hear about Lisa's experiences because we're colleagues and because it was part of us doing this work in the first place. I don't know if Lisa wants to talk about that, but you're often very much in the spotlight of very contentious, difficult, painful, violent conversations. 
quite, I mean, that is undoubtedly true. And I guess it's, it's slight, it speaks to what Suzanne said, but in a slightly different way that I can feel like, um, that, that in one sense, as a, somebody who's experienced this, but then who also is an academic, that I'm not doing enough um, to to help survivors. But at the same time, I people have said to me, you know, you're going to you're going to implode the church if you keep talking about what you're talking about. And so you've got that mm. kind of constant tension. I think one of the things that I that the conference really did well, I think, was that it did. And Wendy's alluded to this, but it did create a space in which people could also talk positively, which I think is often something that's really difficult to do when you're talking about really difficult topics to be able to say, actually, my experience was really difficult, but this bit was dealt with well, or this really mattered. And mm. it's almost sometimes if people start to have those conversations, we can feel like we're, we're minimizing the experience, which it isn't at all. But those kinds of conversations, because actually, if we want to bring about change, we need to know what good looks like so that we can do more of it. But it's really hard to have those conversations. And, and it is hard to keep to keep that tension between wanting to bring about change, but also self-protection and not over-promising. There's a lot of tensions going on all at the same time. And those conversations are, are kind of multidisciplinary, aren't they? So if, if, if things are going to change for the better, um, that needs all of those different voices, um, survivors who are at different stages of their, of their journey and their, their kind of personal processing of that. Um, it needs um, kind of the religious insiders who are either institutional insiders who are working with institutions or, you know, in a Christian context, theologians or in the Buddhist context, people working with the texts um, to uncover what, what are these vectors of, um, of abuse and coercive control? How does that work? How does that work in the structures? You know, how is it facilitated? And how can things be restructured? What resources can be drawn upon um, to, you know, move forward in a, in a positive way? And it needs all of those um, voices involved in it. But all of those different voices are giving something very, very different um, to that conversation. We were a bit worried about that too, weren't we? Sort of, mm. um, it just becoming a mash of ideas where some of the disciplinary or contextual boundaries were, were so, um, uh, you know, yeah. it, was, it was so fluid that you might have lost some of the specificity, but but it didn't. We managed to hold on to some of the context, um, I, I think. Um, but there were there was instances of good practice shared, um, and that that was important too. There was that learning, wasn't there? From different examples, different bodies that tried different strategies and policies and procedures. And that, that was, that was uh, so important to the conversation. I was thinking also that, um, that with, with, with that so often the contribution of academia is to make things more complicated, mm. more subtle, more kind of, you know, that's kind of partly what we do, isn't it? So that is to go beyond the easy answers. And the easy answers in, in any kind of abusive situation is that there are good people and evil people. And we just, if we can identify the evil people and, and then somehow we've, we've done our job. So there's a way in which the things that we're, you're talking about push back against that idea by saying, here are the mechanisms, here are the structures, here are the ways in which we're all basically mm. both pos it's possible to be complicit mm. and possible to to kind of help end it as well 
I think something that I'd like to, to bring up is the survivors, I think, can see academics as being complicit in reinforcing the narrative of religious organisations quite often. And I don't think that's an unfair generalisation on the whole. Um, but I think that conferences mm. like this and some of the work that Inform has been trying to do is trying to find ways where it's safe to share share aspects of survivor stories and the abuse um, and problems that sometimes happen in an organization that also does lots of other things um, in a way that doesn't isn't going to cause libel lawsuits against us as scholars, which is a very real concern, and, and myself and colleagues have been threatened with that, um, as well as not threatening the outcome of a court case, because uh, as Inform, we've also been involved with court cases, and if there is um, an obvious kind of conspiracy that people have might be brought together to have a similar kind of complaint, this can be used by the defence um, as a way of trying to, to get out, and, and court trials are very emotionally demanding for all involved, um, and so there's lots of good reasons why serious things that shouldn't have happened don't actually get tried properly, which in some ways is a shame. But what I wanted to come back to is that um, Wendy's point about witnessing the stories does do something. And these venues, um, these, these platforms where people can share their stories in a safer way, give us as scholars um, material to say that there was a discussion on this topic or the, the, it gives us a way to talk about it. And the Internet's also been really good. As, as people put their stories up in various ways, we can then talk about them because when they're hidden, we, we, it's much harder to talk about them. Yes. Yeah. We can't just talk about rumour, <laughs> no matter what we might hear. Yeah. So as soon as something goes in any way on record, even if it's social media, then yes, you're right. And we can have conversations. Um, but yeah, that role that um, academics, I think this maybe particularly is an issue for religious studies, that, that, that a part of what religious studies does is tell the stories of institutions and the stories of, of prominent figures. Um, and if the researcher isn't necessarily aware of uh, historical abuse within that context, then uh, we we can become kind of complicit in a form of hagiography, I guess. Um, and it, do we think that's particularly an issue for religious studies? Because I, I wonder if it is. I think it, I think it is. Um, I think that that is um, hopefully beginning to change. I mean, uh, I think it was Theo, you mentioned that, you know, how people are horrified that um, to hear that there are um, abuse situations in, in yoga. Um, I think mm. there's there's a kind of um, historic privileging of, um, well, it's a privileging of Christianity, actually, that results in um, a, a kind of view that, that um, the religions uh, or the traditions other than Christianity um, don't have these problems, um, and um, you know that that, that this is a sh this is a shock. Um, and the job of religious studies scholars, because of this privileging of Christianity, is to tell a good story about these other religions. Um, mm. You know that speaks to a kind of anti-racist education agenda, um, and you know it, it, it's 
part of um, the motivation, I think, for a lot of religious studies scholars to have got involved in the study of religions other than Christianity. Um, mm. So, so when when you know this this discovery is made that actually um, all these all these traditions are similarly kind of marked by this problem, then that, then that seems really shocking, um, and. Yeah, it's difficult, I think, for, for some religious studies scholars who haven't perhaps gone through that realisation to um, to present their traditions in that nuanced way. Um, I loved what Suzanne just said about, you know, that these traditions, they have these issues, they have all kinds of other things happening within them. Um, so not, not everything about a particular tradition is bad, you know, um, but it takes some skill to kind of balance that and, and, and to show that in full. I mean, I've had experiences where I've been um, speaking about uh, Buddhist addiction recovery at conferences to um, people who are interested in addiction recovery. And they have this, this um, preconception that, that Buddhism must be entirely good and pure and, um, you know, and that this kind of thing doesn't go on. Um, and I think that there's kind of all kinds of post-colonial reasons for that, that religious studies really does need to do a lot of work to grapple with. We do have the resources, though, don't we, in religious studies? There are approaches that you know the approaches that yeah. some of us use you know in our research lived lived, lived religious approaches narrative approaches mm. um, work from feminist and gender studies uh, within religion that privileges not only the privileges the researcher if we're thinking about autoethnography but privileges the voices of those who aren't in those authoritative positions of power where their stories and and uh, you know their realm and their jurisdiction is is is, is reproduced in the way um, that sort of they are alluded to which definitely is part of, 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 of what's happened. So I totally ag agree with what's been said. Um, and I think use, there are some really effective approaches. Um, and, and Lisa's work, of course, <laughs> in psychology, mm. we're talking about religion, mm. but Lisa uses very similar approaches um, to, to, to the groups and individuals she works with. And I think as a religious studies scholars, sociologists, anthropologists, religion, there has been the claim that we're not always very good at talking carefully with nuance about the bad stuff about the evil stuff that we too sort of can dichotomize far too quickly between what's good about religion and what's bad about religion and of course it's a lot more complicated than that i think mm. one thing i'd say yeah. as well is that i think just getting back to kind of where we start in terms of how we put the conference together that actually i was really aware that i didn't have a religious studies background that isn't my expertise and i knew there were things missing from my understanding of spiritual abuse because of that but actually one of the ways i guess to guard against sort of sitting within your own silo is is doing what we did which is working cross discipline and interdisciplinary mm -hmm. way which allows you know learning in all i learned so much every time i speak to to Dawn, Wendy and Suzanne, I'll learn loads because that's not my perspective. But I hope I bring a bit as well to say, well, what about this? So actually, I think the future of work like this is in that collaborative work that that, that mm. is prepared to explain why religious studies perhaps looks at it this way and psychology looks at it this way and it's not we know it's not as simple as that it's not they're not homogenous things but but I think there is something to be said about um not sitting in our silos and getting out and, and saying you know if we want to look at this 
this topic, in this case, spiritual abuse, we need to do that work of getting out of where we are and listening to the voice of other perspectives as well as other groups, for example, survivors and practitioners and counsellors and all of that. And that's the way, I think, to, to move things forward. Mm. Right. Well, I have I have a question that I, I wanted to ask each of you because it's been kind of sitting in my mind for a while. And, it, and it's one I think that other people I know a couple of other people have asked, and that is whether there's something specific about certain kinds of religious experiences, particularly transformative, transcendent religious experiences that really trouble our notions and our ideas of informed consent. Like, you know, we think about abuse and consent being closely related, you know, that experience is, an abusive experience is one in many ways that you did not choose or that you did not knowingly choose. Um, And is it possible to consent to deeply transformative and transcendent experiences would be my question. I think Suzanne should respond to that. (laughs) (laughs) We had a bit of a a chat about this before. Um, I I think this is such a fascinating and really important question, and it comes down to how much our society is is only starting to have the conversations around consent. And there's really been so much change in the last 10 years that we're having conversations now that we, we couldn't have before. But we, we tend to still be a bit legalistic about it. And it's not helped by the legal system in that it's kind of like, did you say yes or did you say no? Um, mm-hmm. And like, it's that's it. But I... I really think that consent needs to be thought of more as an ongoing negotiation and something that you have to always be asking questions about, checking, are you okay with this? Was this right for me? Um, So I think there's lots of situations that we can't give informed consent to, but that doesn't mean that we don't have power and we shouldn't be negotiating how safe we feel or um, that acknowledging that that we feel harmed in some way um so that this is mm. this is wider than wider than spirituality but i mean it comes it comes some from say uh one of the really dramatic um examples was something that i mentioned at the conference in the paper i gave was informers involved um with collecting survivor stories from a particular guru who was eventually charged with um, eight counts of rape and sexual assault on which he was convicted of three of them. Um, And there were, as is usual in this kind of situation, there were dozens more people who did not join the court case than did. And Mm -hmm. there was one person in particular who I I remember kind of her, her story was, I was raped, but it was the most profound experience in my life. So I don't want to be part of the legal proceedings. It was actually a really positive experience, yeah. but I was raped. Um, and that's that's not something that's easy to talk about. And it feels like you're justifying someone who was very manipulative in many ways that also didn't come into the court case, which was narrowly focused on this issue of was this woman raped or sexually assaulted at this moment, at this time, when actually there was lots of other coercive control going around, lots of financial control, that all that was considered to be irrelevant to this particular court case. So, Mm. um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. I think my colleagues will probably have other things to add. There's been some really interesting um, discussions in uh, around, but um, by feminist scholars, uh, queer studies, uh, in and religious studies around sort of rape culture and religion, and I don't think 
this particularly new point, but that consent is just such a low bar. <laughs> right it's like a minimum <laughs> requirement like uh, and that sort of feeds yeah. into what Suzanne was saying about um you know that the ongoingness uh, uh, that, that should be there but it, even just uh, consent itself probably needs well it does doesn't probably it needs way more thinking about uh, than the, we haven't got the mm. tools I don't think but um I've just really noticed that the the, the the critique of consent that's been happening in, in different sorts of conversations, again, across different disciplines. It's certainly happening within um, um, our colleague, David Clough, um, who uh, is now at the University of Aberdeen. He does work in um, uh, Christian ethics, particularly around the relationship between human and non-human animals. And they're having very interesting conversations around what consent means mm. in that relationship. And uh, so it, it's moving. That language is, is moving, but it's not good enough, is it? <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I was just going to say that one of the reasons uh, why I think this is a live question for me is I, I do some work on yoga teacher training programs, talking around ethics with with, with trainees and uh, for, uh, professional development. And the conversation that's starting to be happening is whether we should be teaching for transformation and for transcendence at all, is that maybe what we should be aiming to teach for is increased agency rather than transformation, and that that is a more sustainable, more ethical thing to be teaching for anyway. So um, that even beyond the consent that we are essentially teaching, what we want to be doing is teaching our students to be able to be better at consenting as much as anything else. You know, that their agency over their situation should be increasing, not decreasing as a result of the experiencings that they're going through. Um, so, you know, I think that's another conversation that's happening elsewhere that's feeding into this, I think. Yeah. But at the other, just to play kind of devil's advocate a bit, is I think that's absolutely the safer way to go. But you, you sometimes in my personal experience when I'm being trained for something, I've really benefited from being pushed way out of my comfort zone. Um, which is not to say it was abusive, but it, 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 sometimes like you, you could see how someone might have taken it the other way. Um, and it would be a shame to completely shut out those possibilities for new experiences and growth. But at the same time, I very much want to help prevent abuse. So it's, it's tricky. It is tricky. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a little bit aware of the time. Um, I was uh, so I was thinking we could maybe start to bring it to a close by talking about where you want to see this work go next, where you you know what the plans are for the next thing. And I, I don't know who wants to go first. If you want to have a wave, um, what what comes next for this conversation, Dawn? Well, one of the one of the resounding recommendations that um, participants at the at the at the conference made was that w this conversation needs to keep happening uh, and to include more people. There are always important voices missing um, because of access, mm. because of the timing uh, of the conference this time round. Um, and so we've sort of thought about some traditional sort of academic -y output. So we have thought about uh, how we might go about a special edition of a of journals or whether we bring together some of the um, survivors stories in a much more accessible sort of publication and whether we have a maybe an academic publication that reflects some of the more theoretical methodological issues um, that were discussed but I think we've been quite keen 
to think about perhaps another conference or another event, not this year, folks, but, you know, soon. But also, but much more sort of, we've had conversations, haven't we, about more sort of networky, local um, ways Mm -hmm. of building the space. Yeah, I've had some conversations with people that were at the conference um, about creating an inter, and we've already started uh, part way down this, but creating an international kind of uh, consortium of people interested. But I know that there were councillors at conference that are interested in creating count- a hub of councillors who want to specifically, to specifically yeah. focus on this area. And so for me, that's one of the things that I see as the next kind of follow on is how do we facilitate some of that so that um, people who are sharing some commonality come together, but we also keep the links so we don't lose the great learning about being together. So, so so I think mm-hmm. that some of that work is ongoing and has been since the conference and lots of conversations and lots of uh, discussions about how do we then create things. And we've got some really good connections for people who came to the conference who are in really good positions to facilitate some of that. So that's where I would see it going. You know, perhaps some hubs that are special interest groups, but actually keeping that wider connection. And maybe I haven't said this too much to Dawn and Wendy yet, but maybe, you know, thinking about every two years, having something where people come together and that might look different each time in terms of I think that's the other thing I don't I personally wouldn't want to get into we're having this conference every two years and it's always going to look like this I'd mm. really love to think yeah. in two years time what has actually needed then and if it looks totally different that's completely fine um, and mm. and something that's evolving and emerging like that I think for me one of the the things that I'd I'd like to see goes back to what you were saying earlier Theo about about religious studies and and some problems with religious studies so you know obviously that we want to see changes within um people's organizations and their and their religious pathways and practices and and you know well-being arenas and so on but I think we also need um religious you know, I'm talking with a religious studies hat on, I suppose, um, to take that um, that learning from the exposure that we've had back into the discipline um, and, and make it really unacceptable to do religious studies without an acknowledgement of this mm. um, yeah. element of, um, of religious life, you know, to... Make people stop and think about um, the way they're presenting a tradition, the way they are doing. I think you called it hagiography. You know, um, yeah. you know it might look like history, but actually, it's 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 hagiography. And 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 to just develop um, the, the the critical skills of students to to be alert to that when they when they read it and. Um, you know, to, to, to kind of make religious studies a little bit more robust. Um, it's, it's, it's really an interesting conversation because it's bringing religious studies into um, the arena of ethics. And, and I hear what Dawn is saying about, you know, the, the massive impact on religious studies of, of um, feminist methods, basically, broadly, broadly speaking. And I think that is really, really helping religious studies. Um, but it needs to go much further. Mm. Mm. And it's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, 
the I'm seeing uh, a lot of students and potential PhD students are really interested in a social justice angle. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's a, a groundswell from from people who are coming into this field wanting to to look at it in a different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's something that that we're thinking about. Um, Theo and I are, are part of an organizing committee for a yoga conference. And so we're, we'll probably have some kind of discussion on these issues and, and what it means for a scholar to be an activist or not an activist or how, how do you position yourselves? And that's, that's quite a difficult conversation. Um, but also considering so many of our degrees, are in, at least in Britain, are called religion, philosophy and ethics. Um, it seems really um, episodic and, and fascinating and, and religion and particularly um, kind of controversial religion is such a great um, place to look for the edges of what where we're going and what's acceptable. Um, so it's a really exciting and vibrant place to be looking. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, I think the the conference that the that Suzanne's talking about, the YDYS conference, is a, an interesting kind of benchmark in a way because the conference was first organized uh, by uh, Matilda in 2016 and we're kind of doing a we're coming back in 2022 to have the conference again and I think that um, there's a there's a sh- there's a real shift um, in terms of the conversations that are happening so in 2016 there was a conversation around scholar scholars who were also practitioners and what it meant to combine those identities and that was a big thing I, and now here we are in 2022 and I think we're ready to have a conversation about what it means to also be an activist and whether that's possible to combined as an identity but I also know um, without wanting to go into detail that um, we were also very clear that submitted abstracts about that we're focusing on disciplines with uh, the lineages and disciplines and groups with with significant histories of known abuse that made no like were no reference at all um, to what was going on to that aspect just didn't feel credible anymore just doesn't feel credible um and i think that's a change um in the last few years definitely um and inform i guess is going to be continuing to do these uh, more regular seminars and events that's kind of the pattern yeah we'll have to feel our way through we've been doing kind of lightning seminars um but it would be great to see people in person again and actually have space for the discussions because that's what's that's what's really missing and i think that the chester online conference did a really great job of of making the best and you get you get people from all over the world online but a lot of these really great discussions are are actually what happens when you're having coffee or at the pub Mm -hmm. afterwards and and i look forward to doing that again someday i would love to do that with all of you at some point soon that'd be really nice (laughs) i miss it too well i guess it only uh remains for me to thank you all again and um i hope this has been interesting and useful for listeners too and let's continue the conversation thank you theo thank you Thanks so much, Theo, for taking the time to record this excellent panel. And thanks to all of our wonderful panelists for joining us here today at the Religious Studies Project. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in for this episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com to learn more about this episode. Also, be sure to head over to social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And let us know what you thought. Like, share, comment on the post. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, if you're able, we ask that you consider heading to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash projectrs to sign up for a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. It would go a long way to helping 
offset the labor of our excellent team members here at the RSP or consider a one-time donation via PayPal. As always, we're very appreciative for any support that you can give us, and we hope that you have enjoyed this episode. And until next time, all that's left to say is, thanks Thanks for for listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. 